It's great to see everyone here today. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a tough Bible study. <laughs> We've been going through the Ten Commandments, right? And, and this is our favorite commandment. Every single one of us today, we're studying don't commit adultery. Uh, so let's go. Let's do it. It's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be exciting. So Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to us, that you send your Holy Spirit to us because we are needy. Uh, we are spiritually bankrupt and you are the source of all spiritual life. And Jesus, you are the door to that source. You are the faucet that turns it on, fills our hearts with the living water. And, and we want Jesus to, to know you in a new way and, and understand your heart for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our simple text today is, is Exodus 20, verse 14, which says, you shall not commit adultery. So there you go. Let's go home. <laughs> but let's, uh, well, let's dive in a little bit and see what that means. It, it means any sex outside of marriage. You know, that's it's pretty simple. It can pretty much mean any and every sexual sin. And uh, we are going to say the word sex a bunch of times today. So kids, sorry. And everyone, sorry. We're going to say it a lot. Of, so just sex. Everyone just say sex. There you go. Okay, we got it out of the, all the ickiness is, is out of the way. And okay, so now we can say it, you know, and understand that. Everyone, anyway, uh, sex is blessed and desirable and allowed in marriage. That's, that's what God says here, you know. You can't do anything outside of marriage. Anything else is wrong except for what God has said, a man and a woman in marriage, and, and period. And, and in our culture today, that is too strict. That is not okay to say in our culture, but th- this is what God says, and, and he he makes no apologies for putting limits on, on this. Chainsaws. Chainsaws are good when you use them in the proper way. But when you try to use a chainsaw as a toothpick, disaster is going to happen, right? Fire is good and wonderful and to be desired, but it also can be destructive and painful when it gets out of control. So which is it, good or bad? Fire. Yes. So well, that's a good answer. Yes. Okay. Ten Jesus points for you. <laughs> so we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter. We're going to look at several verses at the beginning and then, a, and then a parable. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And you know whenever we talk about this verse, we're going to see Matthew 5, 27, which is when Jesus brings up this verse and he teaches us about it. And he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus just simply says it's really the heart that matters. Just because you haven't acted out an opportunity to sleep with someone doesn't mean you're innocent of breaking this command. It certainly doesn't mean that you, need, you don't need to talk with God about it, and we don't need to discuss it at a church. We do, and we are weak in this area, every single one of us. We are guilty of breaking this command. Oh, that's what I love hearing when I go to church. I'm guilty. This pastor, he's so mean. You know, we should avoid things that cause that, that create within us lustful thoughts, things like, uh, suggestive songs, you know, 
movies or pornography, whatever, would get you thinking in that way. Paul says to flee from that kind of temptation. And, and we need to listen to that. Oh, I just read it for the articles. <laughs> I just listen to it for the beats. It was nominated for Best Picture. I have to watch it. Honey. And, and we need to be thoughtful about the way we dress so that we don't you know, cause other brothers and sisters and, uh, to be tempted to lust. I mean, all these things are commonly known. I mean, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus says it's about the heart. Lust can happen in the heart. Adultery happens in the heart long before it ever takes a physical form. Or it may never take the physical form, but we're still guilty of it in the heart. In Hebrews 13.4, God says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God is very serious about what is right and wrong. And just because we disagree with his definitions of what's right and wrong doesn't mean anything. He is God, and he sets the rules. And this makes a lot of people upset. You're not the boss of me. It's my body. I can kiss who I want, when I want, and I can kiss as many people as I want. Didn't you know that the 60s freed us to love? however we wanted. Free love, right? Peace, love, and rock and roll? It's simply not true. God desires what is best for us. And he knows better than you what you need. Mm. Today, we're going to find out what we really need. This law of not to commit adultery helps us greatly in this pursuit of finding out what we really need. This law is wonderful and terrible all at the same time. Kind of like fire. It reveals one of the most fundamental broken parts of all of us, and that is we are relationally challenged. We are bad at relationships. We are all broken when it comes to connecting to other human beings and even more broken when it comes to connecting with God. But God commands us to connect, the very thing that we suck at. We're awful at it, and he says, go do it. Marriage, I mean, he tells us to go get married. And he puts a virtually insatiable desire deep within us for relationship and connection and intimacy. Is this some kind of cruel trick by God? We'll turn to John chapter 4, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today is in John chapter 4. Why do we find it so hard to satisfy the desires we have for relationships and for love? I mean, It's like we know it's what we need, but every time we put ourselves out there and go for it, it somehow blows up in our face and we either get hurt or we end up hurting someone else or a colossal combination of the two. And kids get hurt and all kinds of stuff. We have these desires and and they seem 
like it's an unfair thing that, that it should be reserved for just marriage because we don't see marriage work that often. So why is it like this? I'm going to read you some stories of some people. Stephen, age 40, writes this. In my mid-20s, I lived for several years with a girl who wanted to settle down, but I hadn't, I hadn't got that wild streak out of my system After that, I went berserk, and I've never settled down since. I've had days when I'd like someone to be around, but about 90% of that time, that doesn't even occur. I've always got some project on the go. I think this is just my life card. I've never had to consider anyone else, and I don't think I'm even capable of it right now. There are times when I wonder if I made the right decision. Christmas is painful on your own but you're not telling me that people in relationships don't feel the same thing. They may lie and say they're happy, but I'm a therapist. I see people who've been in loveless marriages for 25 years, and they're riddled with stress and disease because they're constantly unhappy. This concept of love that we're exposed to by the media is all fake. It's all the stuff of Hollywood. The one thing I do not like about being single is that you're always viewed with suspicion. Like, did you watch the Killing TV show? It turns out the killer was some 40-something single bloke. And you think, great, thanks for that. Okay, Andy, age 47. I've never been in a long-term relationship. I don't scare horses on the street, but I don't think other gay people get me. I came to London when I was 30 thinking I'd have a better chance of meeting someone. I've been here ever since. I think it's harder at my age as a gay man to find love. At age 47, you basically don't exist. Gay culture is so youth-oriented. It's like you're fighting a competition with something I don't understand, some word, in tight little t-shirts, and you don't stand a chance. So you think, okay then, I'm just going to have to be slightly eccentric outsider who everyone loves and sits in his flat eating tin salmon. I can deal with that. Then all of a sudden, the goalposts move, and I had no choice when I was growing up. We wouldn't have dreamed of getting married or having children. That's what our parents uh, were so. That's why they're so sad when we came out as gay. But it wasn't an option. Now gay people are having it all. They have the joint mortgage. They have the antique shops, and buying lovely things and having dinner parties, and having the biggest, campiest weddings you ever dreamed of. And you think, I really have missed the boat here, or am I even on the dock? It's so awful, really, on some level. It does compound the feeling of loneliness. Elizabeth, age 42. I've had quite a few one-night stands, but I'm not somebody who has had a lot of boyfriends. It's not my makeup. I'm independent, and I'd, I don't want to be like everyone else. So I go sometimes to my parents, and my parents thought I was a lesbian because they never met any of my boyfriends. And I couldn't tell them about the flings. But it's nice to have intimacy and touch. I hug people all the time, but because I haven't been with anyone for a while, I've kind of lost my appetite. I was in the play My Fair Lady once, and the lead guy had the most beautiful voice, and he sang that one, strong, that one song on the street where you live, and I said, do you know every time you sing that song, I have the feeling of being in love, and I love it. A couple months ago, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have that feeling? Some people fall in love at the drop of a hat. Maybe it's because they need to. I don't need to fall in love, she said. <laughs> 
Our last one, Ash, age 34. I have a neuromuscular disability and need the help of a personal care assistant for almost everything I do. I have an exhausting, time-consuming routine, getting up, dressed, washed, and fed. Despite this, I hold down a career and have friends, but I don't have a relationship, and it's something that chips away at me every day. They say that behind every successful man, there's a strong woman, and I think that's true. The only true love I've had has been the parental love, and I think that if I was in a relationship, my, instinct, my natural instinct would be to reflect this. I would set very high standards for myself, and I'm almost certain that I couldn't come anywhere near meeting them. With my physical limitations, I would not be able to put my arm around my partner to give them a hug or a kiss when they don't expect it, but I feel that they really need it. I'm always aware that I couldn't be a full part of the normal lives other people were having, so in many ways I felt like a loner. But the most real part of me is intimate, passionate, generous, and I need to be in a relationship for that to come out. So many people are very confused. They feel the need for a relationship. They feel the desire for intimacy. Even the call to wholeness through relationship, they they understand that they're incomplete alone. And yet we hear stories after stories, and these are just a a taste of things that we hear from all the people in our, our world, filled with hurt, pain, false assumptions, and a lot of settling for less than real love. Let's look at a story in Jesus' life that can help us understand the deep levels that God wants uh, to work in our lives today. God wants you, every single one of you, today to walk out of here knowing that you have access to all that you need in love. That his love for you will be everything that you need. He wants to rip away every expectation, every assumption that you have about what you need to be fulfilled in this world relationally. And we're going to replace it with truth, what's really true. So John chapter 4, let's start in verse 3. And it says, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which name is Sychar, near the plot of ground which Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which is noon, the hottest part of the time of the day. And a woman of Samaria came and draw, drew water, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. So right here, it's already a weird story for the people who would read it because at noontime, nobody goes to the well because it's the hottest time of the day except the whores, except the ladies who were of uh, bad reputation, you know? And so that's where we find this woman. And Jesus is there, and he would know that expectation that that's the type of woman that this was. And he says, I want to have a relationship with you not marriage. He's not proposing to her. He's just saying, I would like a relationship with you where I'm master and you are servant and you get me a drink. You serve me. 
I'm inviting you to serve me. I'm inviting you to be in the place you were meant to be your whole life, doing what you were created to do, serving God. That's what Adam and Eve were put on the earth to do. God said, I got some jobs to do. I've made these cool jobs. You get to do it. Name the animals. Go tend the garden. It's going to be exciting. Serve me. Let's do this together. And Adam and Eve are like, no, we don't like your ways, right? Started off that way all the way at the beginning. Jesus is going back to the Garden of Eden, inviting people into a servant relationship with him. Jesus is saying to this woman, I think you're pretty cool. I think you're worthy. I think you're worth my time. You are my choice. I have chosen you. Those are great things to hear, especially when you're a terrible person, which we are. Now, we could question the choice of Jesus. Does he know this woman? I mean, she is awful, as we're going to find out. But... Yes, he does know this woman. Does he understand her faults, her failures? Does he know how deceptive her heart is? Does he know her brokenness and sinfulness? Yeah, he does. And he still invites her. Well, let's find out more. Let's look. Verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Her response is, There is no way you like me that much. No way. This is crazy already. How could you desire a relationship with me? She is so broken, this woman, that she cannot even imagine a pure relationship done with honor. She can't can't even understand it. It's not even on her radar. She sees the separation. She sees that he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, he's a man, she's a woman. She sees the obstacles. She sees the outward. But God sees the heart, right? Jews believed that they were superior to the Samaritans because of their works and their heritage. The Samaritans used to be Jews, but they had intermarried with other people of the land, people who didn't worship God, but they had kind of kept this identity that, yeah, we, were, we like the Jews. I mean, we're, we're kind of family, but the Jews are like, no, we hate you. But Jesus sees her not as being a Samaritan, He sees her through his love and through his truth. Is it true that she's a Samaritan? Is it true she's a Samaritan? Yes. But Jesus has another truth. And the truth that Jesus has is the truth of what she will be. He can see the beginning from the end, right? And he knows what he is going to do in her. He sees the past, the present, and the future. And he knows that he is going to make this woman his bride, spiritually. He generally does want relationship with her. He has honestly chosen her. His love for her is real and passionate and pure. It's almost 
too intense to understand. That's why she's like, what is going on? It's like the sun. The sun can be felt and it can, it can be bright, it can illuminate, but it is nearly impossible to look directly at it, right? It will make you blind to basically everything else if you stare at it. Don't try that. It's not a suggestion. Jesus, in his love right now, is incredible to this woman. Let's see what happens. What does this have to do with adultery? Let's find out. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but the water, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. (laughs) Ha ha! And the woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. So what is she trying to do? She's trying to hide the adultery. Don't do that. (laughs) Instead of trying to hide the adultery, the better course of action would be to believe the love of God being explained to her. That would be the better course. Adultery was the outward expression of the brokenness of her soul. Adultery was the outward expression of the brokenness of her heart. She had looked... (laughs) For love in all the wrong places. Right? Looking for love in all. So Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Jesus already knew. Jesus already knows about us that you are an adulterer, and me too, every single one of us. But Jesus still chose to love her and to choose her. And he invited her into a relationship in spite of her current lifestyle. But he is going to talk about it. Oh, I want you to come, but we are going to have a conversation about what's going on in your life right now. Because all these relationships and all these marriages show what was going on in her heart. What is that? The woman in verse 19 said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Which means, wow, you know spiritual stuff. You know what's going on in invisible places. I have some spiritual questions. I have some desires that are unfulfilled, obviously. And I have a desire for spiritual life. I have a desire to be satisfied. Maybe you can help me with this, Jesus. 
she asks him a question on the spiritual side of things now. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you know, and we worship what we, uh, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus tells her, your spiritual life is currently based on things you don't understand and things that are fading away. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The way you're going about things, trying to find love in all these wrong places, trying to look in relationships and look to men to meet your needs, it's not going to happen. But he says here, God is working. I'm working. I'm moving. I am making all things new. I am going to bring you the Holy Spirit who will make spiritual life as easy as breathing. Everyone take a deep breath. That's how easy it's supposed to be to be a Christian. Just breathing. I will do this for you, Jesus says, by my love. I will provide for your spiritual life, which is your deepest need, which is the reason why you've been going out to all these men, trying to fill this emptiness. I am what you need. But I'm not going to marry you. I'm Jesus, right? I'm going to do it on a deeper level so that I can do this for everyone. He doesn't just pick this one woman to marry. He's reserving this satisfaction for every human being. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am everything that you guys need. So verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I told you, I am the Messiah. Jesus says, I am all that you need to know. I tell you all things. I give you all things. I am all things for you. And if you have all things, you don't need other things. Or people. Or relationships. You don't have to figure it out. I'm going to reset the story now, okay? So just to reset it, so we have it. Here is an adultery-infested woman. Just five husbands living with a guy now, not even married. Totally given to adultery. Trying to find someone that would meet her deepest needs. Someone who would love her. Someone who would satisfy those most powerful desires deep inside for love and value and affection. She's been looking for love in all the wrong places, like we said, right? Jesus comes and he calls her into a relationship, reveals that he already knows about her adultery, and then reveals not all the punishment that she's going to get. He reveals who he is. I already know who you are, but I'm going to reveal to you who I am. 
and he reveals what he's going to accomplish. He's going to accomplish the restoration of spiritual life to men. That's what Jesus says I'm going to do. He's not intimidated by adultery. A lot of times, as Christians, we consider adultery or any sexual sin as being icky. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to get involved in the lives of people who have these sexual problems and stuff like that. And Jesus is not like that at all. He was fully willing to get in and meet the needs of this person, and he knew how. He knew what they needed. But wait, what about the adultery? How does Jesus deal with the adultery? What does he tell this woman? That icky, sticky sin that tarnished this woman, that's made her unacceptable, that she has to come in the middle of the day because all the other women would probably throw rocks at her if she came in the cool times of the day, in the morning or the evening. She was an outcast of society. And Jesus, what is he going to do about that? What is his strategy to deal with her sin? Rehab? No. 12 steps? No. Go to church more? No. Read your scrolls more? No. Change your appearance, how you dress? Do more churchy things? The only strategy Jesus has in confronting this adulterous woman or any adulterous heart is himself. He's his own strategy. He says, all you need is me. Look at, remember what he said? He said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. But the water that I shall give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus makes it personal. He makes the answer personal, not a system, not a scheme, not a plan, not a book. He makes it a person. Why does he make it so personal? Because he personally loves us. And he wants to supply all that we need through his personal grace. A touch from his powerful hand into our very life. That's what he wants to give us. Do you want that? Do we want that? He doesn't ever want us to feel like we need to accomplish something outside of him, like in a relationship. You know, yeah, I go to church on Sundays, and that makes me feel pretty good. But where my heart really gets excited is Tinder. Sorry, I know you guys met on Tinder. And it's beautiful. (laughs) Maybe I wasn't supposed to say that, I don't know. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Hi. <laughs> I'm not anti-Tinder. I'm anti, I need some relationship before I need Jesus. That's what Jesus says here. You can't want anything more than you want me. I will satisfy you. And if you have me, you won't need those things. Have you ever been with a needy person? Clingy? And aren't they so much fun to be with? (laughs) All of us, thank you, Holy Spirit, no, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) All of us get 
clingy when we're not satisfied. And Jesus is saying, I'll make you satisfied first so that when you are united with someone, you do get married or you are already married, you're not going to be a burden to that person, but you're going to be a blessing to that person. You're not trying to get from them and, oh, come on, come spend time with me, but you're going to be, how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I pour out my life to you? Then this all works. Marriage is such a blessing when both people are tripping over each other to serve and love and not, well, he's not meeting my needs, so blah, 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 blah. That wasn't anyone specific. I was just (laughs) making up. Jesus makes it personal because he doesn't ever want us to feel like we need something besides him personally. His, him as a person. I will do it for you. Religion doesn't get this. You know, when people just go to church, they don't, they, they're thinking, what can I do? Whereas Jesus says, it's what I do that church should be about. Not what you can do. I don't care about how many of these and what you do with those and what you're trying. I'm here to meet your needs. That's what ch- church is truly about, what it should be about. How does Jesus know that the woman's heart can and will be changed? How how can he know that her adulterous thirst for relationships and value will be quenched? How does he know that? Notice, I want you to notice in this text, he never tells her that her desire for relationships or value is wrong. Your desire to be loved is not wrong. Your desire to be in a relationship is not wrong. In fact, like we said, that was placed in you by God. A strong desire for relationships and for intimacy and connection. He made you like that. So obviously it's not wrong if he put it in you. But Jesus just claims to be able to satisfy that deep internal thirst and desire for love, he says, I am the answer to that. Okay? Women seek out relationships when they feel bored with what they have. All of a sudden, a guy starts paying attention to them and all the mystery to explore his mysterious dark hair. It, it just... <laughs> I wasn't talking about you. But a guy arrives, and, and there's this mystery, and, and it's exciting, and there's something to explore, and it's just exciting, right? And things that they withhold from their husbands are freely given to another guy, hopefully to get that excitement and feel that value again. The enemy, Satan, he tells their heart, he whispers, and he says, this guy is what you really need. This guy is what you really need. But it never satisfies. And as soon as they give in to this temptation, the enemy stops saying, this guy's so wonderful. And he starts saying, you're a piece of crap. Because you broke the rules. The enemy is so mean, he doesn't let you enjoy it for any amount of time as you start making out with him. And all of a sudden, it's shame, shame, shame. He's a, a meanie. He's not your friend. 
The enemy does this every time he makes you feel the shame, and shame is the lowest form of value. When you feel shame about who you are, you don't feel valuable, do you? No. Men seek out pornography and affairs when they feel bored with what God has given them. Their wife did nothing wrong. The enemy just whispered in their ear and reminded them how fun and exciting seeing naked people is. And he convinces us with this image or with a secretary, a real person, that this image or or person will satisfy the deep desires for value that we feel, for relationship. And that hunger will be satisfied. The enemy's so good. And then as soon as we give in, he says, shame! And men hate it. And so we either have to run away and leave our wives and family to get away from the shame feeling or, or we have to ignore it or we just become mean or so many different fleshly reactions to that because shame is the lowest form of value. Some seek out same-sex relationships. Some go for celibacy. Others go other directions. Yet Jesus claims that all of us can only be satisfied in him. We're all in the same boat. We're all messed up and broken relationally. And Jesus says, you're not going to find it in each other. Nobody can fill the the, the, the need that you have except me. How narrow-minded Jesus is. Actually, I think he's pretty loving. He's like, I see that you have a need. I know because I'm God that nobody's going to meet that need, but I'm willing to meet that need in you. How loving is that? The solution isn't to deny that these desires exist. You might have been thinking, oh, we're going to study the commandment, don't commit adultery, so let's just all pretend none of us ever want to commit adultery, and all of us are totally pure, squeaky clean, and wear white robes to bed every night. Maybe we thought we were just going to try to restrict these desires. Oh, you shouldn't feel the need for relationship and intimacy. But rather, we need to have our heart satisfied by Jesus first. Then relationships will be blessed and will work. Honesty with Jesus about your heart and failures and desires is called humility. You know, coming to God and saying, I need you because this is the type of person I am. This is how Satan tempts me, and I could totally fall. Then, number two, trusting his promises, his word, his love. When he says, I will pour my living water into you, yes, I believe you'll pour your living water into me. If I come to you, I believe you will meet my need. Coming to him to satisfy the deep internal desires for relationship and value by faith. There we see the humility and faith, which is how grace works. His gift is to us that he will meet our needs. So good, right? He's not a mean God. Jesus has so much confidence that this works because he is experiencing it for real. Look at our next verse here, verse 27. We're going to go down to 33. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things I ever did. 
Could this be the Christ? Then they went out to the city and came to him. In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? But Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus has been satisfied already in his relationship with God. He has been satisfied. So there is no adultery that his soul desires. He can talk to a woman and not be weird. How can that happen? He's not a pig-nosed man like every other man. Right. How did he get that way? Because the desire was killed at the source. Just like his body yearned for food, but he was satisfied, his soul, his flesh that might have yearned for relationship was already satisfied in the Father. His Father met that need in him. Jesus humbly serves his Father how his Father wants. And his humble faithful relationship by that jesus is satisfied matthew eleven twenty seven. jesus said all things have been delivered to me by my father all things and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him jesus had all things all they were delivered to him from the father he had what he needed already And so when a woman comes up to him, there's not a danger for adultery because he was already okay. That thirst had been quenched through relationship with God. There is no other source. He went to the Father. The Father gave him what he needed. And you can't say that that he was less human than us because he never got married and never had sex. You can be just as satisfied as Jesus was and never have a relationship ever, period. Isn't that crazy? Be just as fine as Jesus, just as happy as Jesus was. He was the happiest person to ever live. That's what the Bible says. And he did it all without even needing anything but the Father. The Father. And we, you and me, can go to that same Father through him, Jesus, today. And he will give us what we need as well. When we're bored and unsatisfied, it is not God's fault. When church is boring to you, empty, dry, unfulfilled, lonely, God's offered it all. He stands there with open arms. We just refuse to go to him. We look for love in all the wrong places. We fight for a better life. We work for more. We seek it out and we never find it. And then we think it's in the next relationship. We yearn for the one. Like those four stories told us about people who never found the one. For satisfaction. God stands there waiting to meet your needs, to satisfy. And he's going to be patient. He is love. All through your life, you have this available to you. 
So verse 39, then the many of the Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans um, had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. When we are satisfied by Jesus and him alone, we become a powerful witness to those in the world that are around us, live in our cities. They will recognize very clearly the radical change in you and the difference from what they are seeking. Why don't you go try to party every night like us? Why are you different? Why do you not even have these crazy desires like we do? And they seek Jesus, they will seek Jesus and be satisfied because of your testimony as you have been satisfied. We become salt and light in this world when we're satisfied by Jesus. So I'm going to read what Jesus said one last time as just a final call to you guys. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. But whoever, but the water I shall give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life.